Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. This episode is part one of our interview with Chuk Besher, executive producer at Three Minute, the digital media arm of Gree, a Japanese internet media company that provides mobile social networking and mobile technology services. A content marketing specialist, Chuk's clients range from the luxury, hospitality, fashion, and pharmaceutical industries. He leads the production of a variety of branded content for these companies, from events to video storytelling to advertising. We kick things off with a discussion on the type of advertising that really resonates with the Japanese consumer, then leaning in on the lessons learned while Chuk was with Grey Group from 1988 to 1991. We then discuss what e commerce looked like in Japan in the mid 90s, as well as the brands who were doing in store marketing well during that time period. We then discuss what it was like producing media for Coca Cola in Japan, as well as his time working on the campaigns for the 2008 and 2012 Olympics, as well as the 2010 FIFA World Cup. Enjoy. The reason it was meaningful in Japan was because there was a lot of street signage, but there wasn't any kind of standardized size signage. So large advertisers like Coca Cola or Or PNG, for example, it wasn't easy for them to do a concerted media buy in out of home because if you had signage that was of all sizes and all specs, well, how would you, you know, as a media buyer select the right, first of all, locations and portfolio of that billboard? And also, how would you then match the creatives to the respective sizes? It was a nightmare. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early stage tech companies grow in the Asia Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to the negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Chuk, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me on the show, Todd. Chuk, tell everybody where are you located? Where are you recording from? I'm joining you from Tokyo, Japan. Why don't we start by a quick introduction of yourself and the work that you do? My name is Chuk. I'm、uh, born and raised、uh, in Japan. The kind of work I currently do、uh, is primarily in content marketing.、Uh, I have clients uh, in uh, luxury, hospitality,、uh, fashion, pharmaceuticals, and they engage me to uh, create uh, branded content uh, and expands a, you know, a whole kind of like a portfolio of types of content from events to.、Uh, Uh, video storytelling to advertising,、uh, et cetera. You were actually born in Japan, Kobe, Kobe, Japan. That's where you were born. Tell us a little bit about that.、Um, I know that 
uh, you know, where your parents were from, you know, we, we chatted a little bit, tell the story a little bit about how, you know, how your family ended up, you know, and, and we're there, uh, out, out in the, in the middle kingdom and, uh, and then, you know, where you and your siblings were born. I have a half a day version and a short version. I assume we should go with the short version. We might need the, the yeah, the cliff notes here of yeah. the short version. Uh, Okay, so the way I ended up in Kobe, Japan, I was born and uh, born there. Uh, it's a port city in Western Japan near Osaka. It's famous for, uh, you know, Kobe Bryant, the basketball uh, player. I yeah. think his mom uh, felt she was, you know, going to have uh, Kobe when she was eating some Kobe beef or something like that. It's also known for its, you know, delicious uh, wagyu, the Japanese beef. <laughs> Anyway, so I was born there. Uh, my parents uh, are kind of descendants of a refugee family. My grandparents fled the Russian Revolution to China, and my parents fled the Chinese Revolution to Japan. And they arrived here on Red Cross passports, so they were stateless uh, Russian, white Russian refugees. And my sister and I were born in Japan, and it just so happens that the Japanese citizenship law uh, so states that if you're born of stateless parents in within the Japanese territory, you are born Japanese. So my sister and I are um, Japanese citizens. Uh, I kind of identify as a Russian Japanese, actually. Uh, so that's how we all ended up in Kobe. I'm now in Tokyo, of course. My, my dad then subsequently, uh, his company moved to Tokyo, and then we moved to San Francisco, etc. So I've been back and forth from the U.S. primarily uh, in my adult life. Obviously, we're going to talk a lot about media, marketing, content, stuff like that over the course of kind of exploring your your career in in Tokyo. But we wanted to maybe kick this off with a bit of a a high level question, and I'm going to ask it the way that I wanted to ask it because I know that you 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 somewhat refute uh, the assumption that's built into the question. So, if we were to say what type of advertising, you know, at a very high level overall, what type of advertising? Advertising resonates with Japanese consumers, and how is it different from the rest of the world? The kind of advertising that I think res uh, resonates with the Japanese consumer, and I don't think it's unique to the Japanese consumer per se, but I think it's advertising that is not advertising. You know, if it's in your face, uh, you know, buy this, it tastes good, or, you know, buy this, it's cheap. You know, it, I think consumers are sophisticated enough uh, these days to kind of turn away from from that. So good marketers and good advertisers are increasingly prone to try to create stories and stories based content that really has, you know, uh, value as content. So as you're consuming it, you actually get some very important either corporate or product or service messages. And then you identify with the brand or the product or the service, and you feel like you want to have it a part of your life. I think that's the kind of advertising that, you know, resonates uh, here. And I think increasingly really around the world, uh, you know, it is an art form that was developed in the United States after all, especially during the advent of the early television. I want to then go back and, you know, it's kind of, it kind of started at the beginning, I guess, uh, you know, back in the late eighties, early nineties, you're with the gray group and, uh, you know, something, something of the, of the, the heydays for that organization, uh, before joining WPP. Can you tell us a little bit about the types of campaigns that you were working on while you were there, uh, and what you might've learned over those three years? 
Yeah, uh, you know, I was uh, initially right out of college. I, I joined Japanese politics, and I was uh, working for you know an LDP, Liberal Democratic Party, it's the ruling party in Japan's uh, think tank. And then uh, Gray recruited me uh, to to head its um, strategic planning, and essentially it it was a uh, a kind of a a department that focused on new business uh, pitches for existing and new clients. And some of the uh, campaigns that I participated in uh, were, of course, winning new businesses like, you know, Dunhill or Porsche, or uh, we also won Dell Computer uh, and some big Japanese clients. But we also were servicing our existing Gray clients that were part of Gray worldwide, like P and Procter & Gamble and Bristol Myers. Um, and I think your question was, you know, so what were some of the sort of highlight campaigns that I participated in? Is that, is that what you wanted to know? Yeah, just some yeah. of the campaigns or some highlights okay. of, of campaigns back in, in those days there. Yeah, I, I learned a lot at Gray. And one of the most important things I learned really was about the importance of uh, localization. And that is that, you know, if you have a global brand uh, that you're bringing into a new market like Japan, uh, Typically, in those days, you would just take a global ad and, you know, maybe translate it or something, you know, it would be a cut and paste of something that is working globally, especially for huge uh, uh, global brands. That was the trend. But I think Gray was very smart in knowing that local knowledge and insight was really important to make a brand successful in a new market. So they entered the exercise through research and they would try to maintain brand integrity that is you know not lose sight of what the brand stands for but at the same time make sure that it uh, is meaningful and resonates with the local consumer and like an example of um, like a bristol myers campaign we were doing with buffering uh, was that we understood pain medicine in Japan to be primarily a concern of the family. That is, you know, uh, in those days, you know, maybe it wouldn't work nowadays because of the importance to recognize women's empowerment and uh, gender equality. But in those days, it was kind of like when you said family, it was all about the mom. And the mom was always concerned uh, about everybody's, you know, well-being. So buffering was introduced to the Japanese market through the angle of, uh, you know, the mom provides buffering because uh, she cares and loves for you and she wants you to be uh, well and painless. Uh, and at the same time, buffering, unlike, and this is the competitive uh, angle of the, the brand, unlike other pain relievers, was really kind of easy on your stomach. So even if you had a, a headache or, you know, some kind of a, a pain, uh, to relieve it, you don't want to then have the side effect of, you know, it upsetting your stomach or something like that. So Buffering not only was this product that was provided through the angle of love, but it was also a product that was kind to your body, especially your stomach, something like that. And I think that was the insight that was reached through research here that might be the best way to introduce, uh, you know, uh, an American painkiller into the Japanese uh, market and did extremely well. 
Thank you so much for that. Now I'm going to move on to the six years that you spent at a startup called Pacific Media. Um, I've got a couple of points that I want to get into, but first of all, maybe just tell us a little bit about what Pacific Media did and what your job, you know, your role, your work there was. Pacific Media kind of, uh, I went independent while I was uh, at Gray. Gray remained a client of mine. And then but a friend of mine uh, who I knew, you know, through my social circle approached me with his startup business, uh, which was Pacific Media. Essentially, it was an out of home uh, media company uh, trying to uh, localize again uh, the Japanese, the American concept of the roadside billboards. And it was a, a standard size billboards that were um, placed along the highways and major thoroughfares uh, throughout uh, the metropolitan areas of Japan. And the reason it was meaningful in Japan was because there were there was a lot of street signage, but there wasn't any kind of standardized size signage. So large advertisers like Coca-Cola or or PNG for 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 example, it wasn't easy for them to do a concerted media buy in out of home because if you had uh, signage that was of all sizes and all specs all over Japan, well, how would you you know as a media buyer select the right uh, first of all locations and portfolio of that billboard, and also how would you then match the creatives to the respective sizes. It was a nightmare. You know, if there was some five by sevens and some, you know, 12 by tens and some were completely irregular sizes, it was a, uh, a creative production nightmare. So uh, it was a really smart American idea that, of course, you would standardize uh, these out-of-home signage, but th that didn't exist in Japan. So it took an American learning, recognized that in Japan that didn't exist, and yet there was a need for it for you know major advertisers, and they incorporated that concept into the Japanese market. And you know we, uh, I don't know, pardon my French, but we we kicked ass or we did rather, rather well in the beginning. Uh, essentially, initially with tobacco clients, but then it became important. Uh, to diversify. And I joined at the point when we were trying to figure out how to market it to others uh, beyond tobacco. And I brought in clients like uh, Coca-Cola and Levi's. And it really helped the company show that it wasn't just a tobacco billboard company, but a, an out-of-home media company. Eventually, we, we did branch out into in-store as well. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, that segues into the next point. I'm, I, I was wanting to get your take on what an in-store experience uh, was uh, in Japan uh, back in the mid-90s. Okay. Uh, so again, as we were introducing the concept of uh, out-of-home media, uh, of course you have street signage or billboards, but out-of-home is any kind of media that a consumer comes into contact with that could be utilized to communicate something to them that they uh, came into contact once they were out of their home. So, of course, once you're out of the home, you could be driving or you could be in the train or, you know, you could be walking the streets, but also you're probably doing things like in any metropolitan area, going to the supermarket or to the convenience store or whatever. And there's plenty of media opportunities there. So, again, we kind of utilized 
uh, American knowledge about, you know, the importance of recognizing out of home as more than just billboards or transit uh, to try to bring it into the store. And we introduced a specific technology that was a barcode based uh, coupon uh, messaging. Uh, and it was basically these coupons that would be printed out at the, uh, you know, uh, the cash register. And it would incentivize you to either buy the same product at a discount uh, the next time or buy a competing product uh, as a try. And the clients were not only uh, major advertisers, but also the retailers themselves. We are talking mid-90s. I wanted to know if e-commerce was potentially starting to creep into the space around that time or was that did that come a little later you know that i think that came on a little bit later e-commerce as we understand it you know to be able to uh, acquire things through the internet or or smartphones because you know you realize that we're talking probably well we're talking 1996 and 7 that we're starting to introduce these um, digitized couponing technology into the uh, retail space, uh, the internet was, you know, just at the advent. Uh, so people didn't still understand the internet um, as we do today. But it was, I think it was kind of like a, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it led the way for e-commerce in that it was electronic-based commerce that was specific to the retail space and it was specific to some kind of interaction you had with the medium, uh, with a digital medium. In this case, it was with the cash register. Last question about those years, and you'd mentioned Coca-Cola because we're going to get into that next, but were there brands, you know, back in those days that you thought were really doing in-store marketing really well? And, and what was it about what they were doing that you respected or appreciated? First of all, you know, you introduced the barcode-based uh, digital couponing uh, initially by partnering with re major retailers, uh, as many as possible, because you need to provide uh, reach and scale to any kind of advertiser. Uh, so uh, initially, it was trying to engage the retailer to recognize that their in-store environment had uh, marketing potential not only for themselves, but also as a revenue stream, uh, you know, upside through advertisers. So that was that was the sort of the uh, you know the the story that we had to tell the retailer. The advertisers or the users of the um, in-store space that were really good at it were ones that they had global experience, and of course the Coca-Colas and you know the PNGs and uh, um, you know the major American brands were the first to understand because they were using it uh, primarily in the U.S. and Europe through Catalina Marketing. And we incorporated this technology into the Japanese retail space uh, by partnering with Catalina. And yeah, so that, that's basically the kind of like the background. The, the ones that used it really well uh, initially were the Coca-Colas of the world that would try to, like if you're buying competing uh, you know, cola or a soft drink, it would entice you to try their their brand uh, the next time you purchase it because every scan at the the uh, the cash register is monitored. So if somebody bought a uh, you know what's a you know a, a, 
a com competitor of Coca-Cola, the cash register would know it and it would print a Coke coupon uh, on the spot. But the retailers also really realized uh, quickly that they had these, you know, what, what are they called, you know, like private brands. So retailers are starting to develop their own, you know, uh, products, uh, anything from soft drinks to ice cream to whatever. So Costco might have, you know, a Costco soft drink or an ice cream or, or detergent. And it would start to uh, recognize that it too can uh, print off a, uh, a comp competing product, primarily a major uh, advertiser, and entice somebody to use their private brands. And I think they were really quick to, uh, to learn the process and to utilize the, the medium. Moving on to your work with Coca-Cola, a place that you were at for about eight years, right? So now we would be moving into the, you know, the early 2000s. Tell us, what was that experience like working for Coca-Cola in Japan? We were lucky enough to sell Pacific Media to Catalina Marketing. Thank you very much. So there was a period there that I didn't really need to worry so much about uh, making a living. And it gave me uh, some time and uh, perspective. And I felt like I needed to uh, go to graduate school. So I, I moved out of Japan. And when I was ready to come back to Japan, uh, Coke recruited me uh, as head of its uh, media and uh, communications. And that's how I joined, joined Coke. And initially, uh, yeah, I, I was primarily involved in kind of uh, bringing Coke Japan to its next level uh, of, of marketing. And we localized something called uh, integrated marketing communication, which was a, a, a marketing method that Coke, uh, you know, revolutionized or um, created. Basically, it's a concept that uh, you are media neutral. So anytime you do media planning, you don't specifically go to buckets of media that you are always used to using, but you recognize that a specific brand and a, and a specific set of consumers that are the target for that brand have different sort of uh, lifestyles and uh, proclivities. So you would study that and put together a media plan based on how the consumer behaves. Basically, it's a 360 approach. You know, like Todd, you might wait, wake up in the morning and the first thing you might do, I don't know, not, I don't know what you do, but like in, back in those days, Pretty much the, a typical Japanese consumer would wake up in the morning and no matter what they were doing, they would put on their morning uh, news and information show, Today Show of, uh, of Japan or Good Morning America or Japan or whatever. It would be playing in the background. So advertising in those kinds of shows made sense because that's the first media that you might come into contact with. Uh, but once you step out of the home, you probably in Japan, you don't really especially if you live in a large city, you don't drive. So you would take the train, which meant transit advertising is very important. Once you're off the, the, uh, you know, the train and you're at your office or you're at your school, you might come into contact with, uh, you know, outdoor signage or in-school signage or vending machine signage. So that would be an important media. Basically, you would put together a portfolio of media that were relevant to the the day in the life of that consumer. Uh, and then you would um, integrate it and 
make sure that the communication from the morning until they come back at night uh, and ready to sign off or whatever was also the messaging was integrated, but also very relevant to the time and space that they were occupying. Uh, it might have the same thing about, hey, this is a new product that is being offered by a, a, a given advertiser, but depending on where you're seeing it, a different aspect of that message would be highlighted. So that's the integration, uh, integration of media and integration of messaging based on the day in the life of a specific target consumer. So we, we localized that in Japan. You know, Coca-Cola has obviously, it's an iconic brand. It has some of the most iconic advertising, you know, some of, some of the most brilliant, innovative, viral marketing that's, that's ever been done. Uh, you know, they're, they're right up there with just about anybody. How have they been able to build from, from your insider view? In your time there, uh, and it, it, you know, and through the the advertising and marketing, how, how do you think they've been able to build such an iconic brand? And how are they able to facilitate and empower so much creativity in all that advertising and marketing that they do? I do think I was sort of very lucky to be part of the Coca Cola system at it's sort of like the the zenith of their you know uh, brand trajectory. Uh, you know, before I joined Coke, probably they became so iconic just by being everywhere. So no matter where you were, you would come across the brand or their products or whatever. So that was a way for them to sort of uh, make sure they dominate your mindscape. But then when I joined, consumers became a lot more sophisticated. There were media options. Uh, lifestyles, uh, you know, evolved. So then it was really important not just to be everywhere, but to be meaningful everywhere. And that meant that uh, the messaging had to be specific to your target audience or the delivery of that message had to be specific to your target audience. And I think that's where the integrated marketing communication came in. And as head of media, I realized very quickly, for example, that uh, despite the heavy reliance on television, when we examined how consumers consume television, it was right at the start of the, the second screen. So the Internet was already starting to be part of our lives. And in those days, television was watched. The ratings were dropping somewhat because people were more diverse in their lifestyle. But still, television was important. But what was less important was television advertising. That is to say, the moment the ads started coming on, people would tune out. They're checking their emails or they're checking their social media, etc. They're interested in the programming, uh, but they're not really interested in the advertising. So, again, it became important. We spoke at the very beginning of the podcast about advertising that is not advertising. And that meant getting back into the TV programs. Uh, and if you, if you recall, I'm a little older than you are, Todd, I'm sure. <laughs> but if you recall the beginning of television in the United States with shows like, you know, I Love Lucy or Bewitched or, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies, uh, you notice that the products are part of the show, you know, uh, 
Samantha, the, the, the witch, is using General Electric washing machine, and she's like, you know, uh, having her trials and tribulations with it, and that's in its, in its way funny. And Darren, uh, her husband, uh, is driving a, uh, a convertible Ford Mustang. Well, these are things that then consumers wanted to aspire to uh, in the new American, you know, growing, help, wealthy middle class. And we basically understood that success story from back, you know, 20, 30 years ago and tried to um, incorporate it in, in Japanese uh, television media at the time. And that meant uh, becoming part of the TV program. So how would you interject a brand back into the show? Anything from like American Idol where, you know, a very uh, obvious Coke glasses spinning at, you know, uh, the judge's table. Uh, but we were much more sophisticated where, for example, a Coke product would become part of a, uh, a comedy skit or whatever. And to your question about how were we able to be so creative and remain iconic was uh, I had a policy to always work directly with the creatives. That is, if we're hiring somebody to come up with a, uh, a TV program, that meant we don't work through agencies, but we work directly with writers and producers of TV shows, and we would brief them. We had a, a rule at Coke, and sometimes I call Coke the Coca-Cola University because it really was kind of like the advent of marketing. Uh, we would... Uh, have a, a saying that would say, no work, uh, no brief, no work. So without receiving a brief, you don't actually start the work. And we would brief the artists or the creators directly to create the kind of messaging that was important to us. And we would respect their creativity and their integrity as creators. And yet we would uh, be really on the, on the same page about what needed to be created and what were some of the, uh, you know, uh, points that had to be uh, met or uh, realized? And that's sort of like giving Leonardo da Vinci a frame uh, and a canvas, but saying, hey, paint whatever you want, but can you please make sure it's a, uh, a woman's portrait, for example? Uh, you know, and the same concept went on with creating TV shows or music or the ads themselves. All right. So loose parameters, um, but with a lot of leeway to be as creative as you want. Just make sure you tick off these boxes in the deliverable. You know, we would find initially the agency would say, hey, 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 you know, that doesn't work in Japan. You can't tell a creative or an artist what to create. But, you know, I found when I'm doing the briefing that they they took it as a challenge, an interesting challenge. And probably because Coca-Cola was in a, in a way an iconic brand. Uh, that they remembered in their childhood or through their parents or whatever. Uh, and they were interested to be a part of contemporary culture uh, in their own sort of creative domain. So we gave them that leeway. But as you said, we, get, we gave very clear, clear parameters of what we needed created. Uh, you were also a part of, I believe, a part of the team uh, that was gearing up and running uh, some of the activities for the 2008 and 2012 Olympics, as well as the 2010 FIFA Cup. I would love for you to talk a little bit about what those experiences were like. Yeah. Uh, so 
you know, initially I was head of uh, media and communication, then they brought me, they uh, transitioned me into uh, uh, branded entertainment and sports marketing. And that's because, you know, every four years, Coke has a huge asset with huge investments that it's completely obligated to leverage, uh, namely the Olympics and FIFA World Cup. You know, it, it happens every four years. Uh, but you can't just keep doing the same thing every four years. And at that time, Coke was starting to realize uh, the importance of integrated marketing communication or campaigns. And how do you then transition that marketing concept or method into the forum of the Olympics or the World Cup. And, you know, that's sort of how that's where I came in. I would take the learnings that we had previously from working with TV stations or media, and I would, again, brief them specifically about the, uh, you know, the, the project of the Olympics or the World Cup. And we would come up with ideas that not only resonated, but that were, um, advertising that is not advertising. So it's branded content that was consumed uh, as content in its own right. I have to ask about the song Happiness. Okay. You're good. You're going to have to tell us, uh, tell the audience, what am I talking about when I mentioned this? Why did you help create it? And what was its impact? I need to refer back to Olympics and World Cup one more time. But when, when I was... Uh, when I was working with the Beijing Olympics and then also uh, with uh, FIFA World Cup South Africa, uh, Coke had global songs. Uh, we took those songs and we localized them in Japan. That is to say, initially we would, you know, maybe if there was uh, an artist like King Nan, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the Somali artist who did the... Uh, the South Africa, you know, global song, but we would partner him, pair him with a Japanese artist and they would sing a duet. Uh, but that was pretty simple. And, you know, uh, it, it worked rather well, but not, not, you know, it, I don't know, it, it wasn't huge. So the song might be great, you know, in, in Latin America or in the United States, but, you know, who knows Kanan in Japan, for example. So, that's when I realized that, that the Japanese artist and her originality or his originality was much more important. And we have an opportunity at Coke, something that we do every year, which is the Christmas campaign. And there's always, you know, the Coke Red Santa and he's always on a, you know, sled or a Coke truck or whatever. Uh, so every Christmas we have to come up with a new campaign. And I introduced the idea of, of branded content also into the Christmas campaign. And the most important thing then was, you know, what's the Coke message? And it's always about positivity, like the glass is half full. And it just happened to be at the point 2011, uh, right after the huge Toku earthquake. I don't know if you remember all the tsunamis and, you know, 3,000, I mean, at the very end, I think over 10,000 people perished. So Japan was kind of at this kind of low, like, you know, we just experienced this massive tragedy, uh, tragedy uh, from Christmas uh, only about, you know, nine, ten months ago. Uh, how do we still have positivity and recognize that the glass is half full and be able to celebrate this opportunity for the family be, to be together? And we thought bringing in an artist as the icon 
And her song as the message, which also resonated with the Coke brand message, uh, was a very effective way to to do that. So we centered the entire campaign around the artist. Uh, she was everywhere on Coke trucks, dressed like Santa or whatever you know it took. Uh, the song was also introduced uh, on Saturday Night Live Japan, and the song was all about uh, you know. When things are hard, the most important thing is, you know, to recognize not only your own difficulties and sadness, but see if the people around you are are okay. And, you know, it, it resonated with what happened with the earthquake, which is, you know, everybody was worried about their friends or family or neighbor. Uh, and that's the song that we created called Happiness. And the, the tagline of happiness is that uh, when... When I'm feeling down and like, you know, I can't go on, uh, I look around and recognize that there is always somebody who then still kind of worries about me and cares about me. And then it becomes more important to think about their happiness than your woes. And actually, that kind of brings in a lightness of heart. And, you know, it kind of gives you a boost uh, to want to celebrate together this that what's important in life which is you know who is near you and are they okay and are we together and do we care about each other so that was the happiness song that was created in 2011 uh and it's still one of the biggest songs uh, in japan i gotta ask you about one other thing um which is the five by twenty uh and this is a wonderful story uh it was the coca-cola's global women's empowerment program in japan i believe you were one of the key drivers of that why why was this so important to you to get behind and and what did they accomplish with that program while you during your time with coca-cola coca-cola was less of a job and more of a uh, university experience for me uh you know starting from media going into entertainment and sports uh, the last sort of sphere that I was able to experience or learn at Coke was uh, about external affairs, which was community affairs and sustainability, uh, sprinkled with government relations. And it was at a time when, for Coke, uh, sustainability was really paramount. And one of the most important things about sustainability uh, i'm sure you're familiar with the sustainability uh, development goals the sdgs for example right it has 17 buckets uh the common thread in all sustainability issues actually uh is the empowerment of women uh you know it's pretty much whether it's plastics or uh global warming or poverty if you really think about it uh Women have not been part of the decision making. And in a way, that's why we're in this mess that we are now. So Coke realized early on that one of the most important consumers that are women and uh, housewives and uh, the people, you know, have the population uh, needed to be economically uh, empowered. Uh, around the world to fight things like poverty or gender equality or, you know, uh, political uh, uh, evolution. And in Japan, especially, uh, women suffer from gender inequality. So 5 by 20 globally was an initiative to see if we could empower 5 million women 
economically by 2020. And in developing markets like, you know, Bangladesh or, uh, you know, uh, India or someplace like that, uh, typically this took the form of women uh, being given Coke uh, vendor status. So in their village or in their town, they were allowed to become independent contractors to sell Coca-Cola products. They would learn business uh, and they would also earn an income. But in Japan, you know, it, we felt it was more important to have a, a, a sustainability angle that had to do with production because we use a lot of uh, the Japanese Coca-Cola market relied quite a lot on um, uh, non-sugar tea uh, and also uh, coffee drinks. Uh, and for the coffee drinks, the dairy products were very important and locally produced. And we focused on tea farming women and dairy farming women and empowered them to learn about uh, how to produce their products sustainably. Uh, and that was important because Coca-Cola could no longer procure products that were not sustainably made. And so the women were trained in how do you produce these products sustainably and how do you create an accounting system uh, that accounted for the sustainable production. It was a win-win because then the women would learn a new skill. They could still continue to sell their uh, supplies to Coca-Cola. And at the same time, Coca-Cola could uh, secure supply chains that was uh, sustainably made and met the standard. Thank you very much. That sounds amazing. You know, when they hit when they hit 2020 uh, and and looked back, was it a a very successful? Did did they hit all the achievements that they wanted to hit with the five by twenty? I left Coke towards the end of that campaign, uh, but I think by 2018 or 19, we already had met the five million. Uh, globally. And in Japan, especially, I think it, it made great strides because I think Coca-Cola as a system realized that there was much more to economically empowering women than just giving them a Coke to sell, that you can be quite innovative about aspects of economic empowerment and maybe tie it into your business model, like, for example, making sustainable products. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.